You know, it's been on a constant loop in my head. What? Watermelon, eggs, there's peas, and bananas. Are you on Harry Styles' TikTok? Is that an Indigo Girls song? Yeah, it's <laughs> watermelon, egg, there's peas, and bananas. Well, no, but now I don't know what it is, but now it's going to be in my head all day. And then Thanks, he's like, we've still found no aubergine, no aubergine, no no aubergine. <laughs> Look, get on that for you, Paige. Oh my God. Hi, Jillian Pensavalli. Hi, Patrick Hines. Hey, fam. Come to Obsessed Fest. How about that? Okay, that would be great. We're looking at October 20th to the 22nd in Dallas, Texas. Yes. We're selling tickets like crazy. Okay. All your faves are going to be there. It's going to be us and Elena Joey and Rabia and Bob Roth and Payne Lindsay and Rebecca Lavoie and Kevin. The Wine and Crime Girls just said yes. yes. Let's Go to Court is coming back. Red Handed is going to be Phenomenal. there. Phenomenal. Oh, Daisy Egan and Stranger Unexplained. Quite a lineup. It's going to be wild. It's, we're having a book party. My book has, will have just come out. Fun. So it's going to be wild. Just go to ObsessedFest.com to get your tickets. And here's the thing we haven't asked you to do in a while. Join the Facebook group. Oh, yeah, that'll be fun. We're up to 52,000 members in there. It's super fun and supportive. It's the True Crime Obsessed podcast discussion group. Yes, and it's pretty heavily moderated in case you're worried about that. In a good way. We just want to keep it positive and fun and upbeat and a place for you to come and talk about the episodes and your dogs and everything else. Yeah. That's all. I guess we're jumping right in today. Yeah, we're doing the Boston Strangler Hunt for a Killer. This is on Discovery+. Plus. Yeah, here we go. Serial sexual murder strikes terror. The Boston Strangler case is America's version of Jack the Ripper. Thirteen killings unlike any before. There were things about the murders they couldn't put in the newspapers. These poor women who were killed, either elderly women who were completely defenseless, or they were young women just at the beginning of their life. When every man's a suspect, the crimes were committed by more than one person. And every woman... A potential victim. This kind of predator is your worst public safety nightmare. 13 dead won't rest until the most infamous serial killer case in America. Time to rock and roll again. Is closed. Can I just say before we start, I take obviously no joy in this. There's no joking around about this. Yeah. I worked on the block where one of these murders happened for four years of my life. Really? At a coffee shop wow. on Gainsborough Street. The very first murder that we were going to talk about here. I worked at Espresso Royale Cafe. If you are like a Bostonian, you've probably heard of it. But you've probably been there. It's like within a block from where the murder took place. Wow. Yeah. So my connection to this is from The Sopranos. Oh. <laughs> it's this like a laugh out loud funny scene. It's Thanksgiving dinner. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. I, I think love I know this. where you're Go. Yeah. I was like, laugh out loud. GP, On the Sopranos. I know, yeah. no, no, no. But this line. Yeah. Oh my God. So it's Thanksgiving dinner. Carmela's parents are there. The doorbell rings. Carmela's mom goes, Oh my God, who could that be? <laughs> like that. Like oh, completely over the top. And Carmela goes, The Boston Strangler. Jesus, Ma. <laughs> It is. But I, like, my grandmother was always like, oh, my God. Like, it's such a grandma move. Oh, my God. Who could that be? Just like that. Tom, if we could hear it, please. That would be lovely. Oh, my God. Who could that be? It's the Boston Strangler. Jesus, Ma. Oh, my God. I mean, all right. Well, here we go. Yeah. We get a lot of recreated voiceover in this. Not my fave. No. Because there's like a long interview with the suspect and like they they sort of like recreate it throughout. But we start with 55-year-old seamstress Anna Slessers. 55-year-old seamstress Anna Slessers lives alone. Her quiet life on Gainsborough Street revolves around a passion for classical music and devotion to her church. In two hours, her adult son, Eurus, will be by to escort her to a memorial service. But the knock comes early. 
There's a knock at the door and it's not her son. It's just some guy. Yeah. So they jump to like what her son finds several hours later well, when he shows hold up. hold on a okay. second. They do. This is very reenactment heavy. Yes. Very cheesy. I liked this doc. You didn't like it. I didn't like it. Okay. I didn't love it. Not my fave. We've covered okay. better things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What if I was like, this is the best documentary we've ever I'd be covered. like, great. Opinions <laughs> are good to have. We do not share the same one. Because it's this reenactment and he goes, I'm here to work on the apartment. And I'm like. The Boston accent throughout here is, re- it's definitely somebody from LA doing a Boston accent. Right. But then we get the real Boston accents from the people who worked <laughs> on the case. But he's like, hey, I'm here to work on the apartment. <laughs> Give me something else. Some of you're going to the Duncan. Uh, that's just I'm going to Duncan. That's universal. <laughs> Isn't that the universal language? So when Anna's son gets there, it's an incredibly violent scene. Yeah, they say the body was found behind a door. The scene is shocking. I'm not describing it. Let's not. Like, basically, this man humiliates these bodies Mm -hmm. sexually. Yes. Either before or after the killing. He stages them in just a really disgusting way. Yeah. But he leaves Anna right by the door so that if somebody opens the door, they'll see her right away. Right. He wants the bodies to be discovered. Right. So we meet this guy, John. He's a private eye. Yes. And John's dad... Phil was the first cop on the scene. Yeah, and he's telling us... Her belongings have been ransacked, but valuables appear untouched. The police classify Anna Slesser's murder as a house break-in with complications. Yet privately, the details of the crime scene trouble them. So this death is classified as a house break-in with complications. And I'm just like, no. But also, like, she was murdered. Can't you just call it a murder? Wouldn't you just call it a... Isn't that, like, a shorter way of saying what actually happened here? Yeah, it seems really disrespectful. Yes. And what we'll learn about this guy is that, like, one of his things is that he can talk his way into anyone's apartment. Right. So there was no break-in because he was welcomed into her home. Right. And so suddenly Sebastian Younger is here. You you know who he is. He's an author. He wrote The Perfect Storm. Like, that's his big, famous book. But he wrote a book called A Death in Bell because he has a connection to this case, which they saved to the end, but I read the book when it came out, so yeah. I know what it is. Right, right. And we'll get there when we get there. Okay. He's here, he's super foxy, and he's just telling us, he's like also just like a very smart person who like is from the area, and he was saying to us, like, what was so wild about these murders is that they were very sexualized, yes. and that at the time, they didn't know how to talk about these murders in the press, because the sexual component is a major part of them, but you didn't really talk about that in the press at Can the time. Can we all grow up a little bit? Yeah. Like, I mean, I, I mean, A, because why do you want to cover the sexual part of it, but it's also important to know because it's a calling card for this kind of sure. thing that will eventually help us like connect the cases. Yeah, but this whole idea of like not, we can't talk about Set like can everyone just get over themselves and grow up? I know I'd appreciate it. I agree. Personally. And then we jump to Lynn, Massachusetts, which is where my father grew up, where my grandparents lived until the day they died. No, Lynn, Massachusetts. L Y N N. Yeah, Lynn, Lynn, City of Sin. I didn't make it up. <laughs> I know. Tell kind of, me about Lynn. It is, is it? to like. I feel like Lynn is to Boston what Queens is to New York. It's ten miles north of the city. What are you trying to say? I'm just about saying. Queens. I'm trying to give a little context. Oh, I here. see. Okay, yeah. geographical context. Geographical. Context. I gotcha. Okay, exactly. I was like, hold what. Lynn is 10 miles north of Boston. It's been 16 days since the first murder, and we learn that our next victim, Helen Blake... At approximately 8 a.m., neighbors will say their friend, Helen Blake, was seen shaking a rug out of her apartment window. Two days later, the crime scene reveals the 65-year-old nurse strangled with a brassiere and two nylon stockings tied around her neck in bows. Her bra and two nylon stockings have been tied around her neck in 
bows. In bows, yeah. And she's been sexually assaulted and, quote, left sprawled. Right. And once again, no evidence of a break-in. Right. Right? So nine hours later, there's another assault and murder. Her name is Nina Nichols. She was 68, retired physiotherapist, and again, strangled and a bow made of stockings. So this guy's doing the same thing to everyone. This is where I take real umbrage with the way the narrator says the body has been decorated with bows. Yeah. Decorated? Yeah. That's not even a technical term. You can't say decorated about a dead per- about a murdered 68-year-old nurse? You can't, right? N- decorated? Yeah, I'm surprised sounds... you don't have more to say about that. Well, it's I, I'm wrong about everything. <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm learning more and more as the days go on. Yeah. No, this you can be right about. Oh, great. Okay, yeah. fuck it. Yeah. Don't say that. <laughs> totally. But they say it throughout. Decorated seems yeah. real disrespectful I feel to like me. my DMs are already... <laughs> Already getting in trouble. (laughs) So we meet Loretta, Loretta McLaughlin. I love Loretta because Loretta is like, she's let the women do the work like personified. Oh my God. Because her whole thing is like, these murders have to be connected. She's a young reporter and she's like, the cops don't want to see these murders as connected. And she's like, they are obvious, like elderly women being strangled and quote, decorated with their fucking nylons being tied in bows. So Loretta takes it upon herself to look into these murders because the cops refuse to acknowledge that maybe they're connected, which they definitely are. And when she goes to her boss and his like, she's like, let me look into these murders. The boss says, and I quote, Oh, who cares? He said, they're nobodies. And I said, but that's just it, Jack. They're everybody. I said, they're us. They're all of us. We're all nobodies. I know, I and know. that's how she gets him to let her like look into this. So Loretta and her partner, Jean Cole, investigate the crimes. I'm going to say they're partner in work, not in life. Right. I, I love a lesbian. You sure. know that. Yeah. But I don't think that's what's going on here. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Loretta and Jean are on the case. <laughs> And we're all better for it. We need more Loretta's and jeans. I couldn't agree in more. this world. A major reason they're doing this is to bring awareness and possibly save lives. And also, like everyone in Boston is fucking terrified because terrified. though the cops don't want to connect the cases, everyone in Boston is like, we've got a fucking serial killer on the loose. Yeah. And all these women are so scared and they're vulnerable. Like no one is safe, right? Yeah. And Loretta's the one who like notices that because of her reporting, the press is going crazy. She's the one who names him the Boston Strangler. Yes. Not the most original name, but a very accurate accurate definition of what's happening here. Gets the job done. It gets the job done. And it's not like glorifying him in any way. It's exactly what he's doing. And I think if Loretta's mission is to get eyes on this case, giving it, like we know, giving it a fucking name is going to draw attention. Exactly. You can imagine ordinary women walking around the streets of Boston with switchblade knives, turning their hairpins into weapons. If the police weren't going to get the Boston Strangler, well, they were going to defend themselves in case he did come calling. They're turning their, quote, hairpins into weapons. Right. They're getting watchdogs. The women of, right, like, literally the kennels are cleared out. We see, like, reporting from inside a a dog shelter. I know. All the animals. There's a literal dog shortage in Boston. Good. Totally. Everyone should have one. (laughs) But you have to be nice. That's the rule. Exactly. But, like, single women were moving in together as to not be alone. Extra locks on the doors. We were just covering this in the killing in the college town where, like, the women were, like, getting all their beds together in dorm rooms so they could, like, have safety in numbers. Right. And they were, like, in their, you know, sorority houses or whatever, like, 40 of them in the living room. Yeah. I would be right there. It's fucking terrifying. I would totally do that. So it's August 21st, 1962. It's one month since the last murder. And our victim here is 75-year-old Ida Erga. And she's found three days after her murder. And again, like, these these murders are getting more and more depraved. They all have, like, very similar through lines, but yeah. they're just getting... And they say, like, she was found in the most grotesque pose yet. Yeah. And they really, like, go into detail here. I didn't even write down I what they were either. saying. I'm like, I'm not, we're not doing this. Absolutely. So after Ida Erga is found, like, the people of Boston are starting to notice that, like, they can't catch this guy. Uh-huh. 
Uh-huh. We learn at some point that the Boston police has like a really good reputation for catching murderers or whatever, okay. but they can't do but it in this, this case. Not this one. One of the things that fascinated people in Boston was just that he seemed to be uncatchable. People started attributing sort of like supernatural qualities to him. They started to mythologize him. And they're starting to, like, attach, like, supernatural phenomenon or qualities to him. Right. Which is just, like, I don't know, whatever you got to do to get through the night. If I'm a woman living alone in Boston and, like, any knock on your door could be a fucking murderer. Right. So nine days later, 67-year-old Jane Sullivan is found murdered. And again, like, nothing is stolen, no forced entry, the bows on her body, like, all of this stuff. And for whatever reason, these women were all willingly letting the killer into their homes. I'm not saying that as victim blamey at all. I'm saying that's how good at it he was. Exactly. That in this time of terror, these women were still like, oh, well, he has to fix the thing. Like, it's it's no fault of their own. Yeah. But the point is, like, he was very good at talking his way into these apartments. And not only that, like, we're going to learn eventually, he was very good at committing these murders and leaving no trace of himself. None. So, like, these murders are brutal. He's doing horrible things to these women, but he's not leaving fingerprints. There's no hair. There's no blood of his. It's wild. Like, just imagine the but entire... But that's why they're attaching those, like, supernatural phenomena to Right. Him because he's leaving he's no like, trace of himself. Disappears. Eventually, Loretta, the reporter, describes all of these murders as perfect crimes. Yeah, yeah, she does. And the thing is, like, I, I just also just want to stress, like, think of how safe these women must have felt with yeah. him when the entire city is on edge and in a panic and they know like he just he it was the ultimate like well he doesn't look like it or he doesn't act like and it. And that's the thing like people keep saying he's a monster but he couldn't possibly look like a monster. Right. He has to look like somebody that you would let into your house. He made them feel safe in a time of absolute terror and panic. Think about that. He's also killing them like in cities like in apartment buildings where you right. would think there would be noise. There, like, you would hear And like somehow he's getting away with all these. There are no witnesses ever. Exactly. Like, what? And so this is where they say the witch hunt for suspects is officially on. This is where, number one, we learn about the first victim's son. He was scrutinized for appearing callous about his mother's death. Like, right. he wasn't emotional about it. That's bad enough because we don't do that. We don't look yeah, at people's yeah. reactions and, like, assign guilt. This is when they start to say bohemian neighborhoods are combed for deviants. Who are they talking about, Jillian? Boston police rounded up every lesbian that they knew of in the city. They thought a woman might have committed the crimes. They rounded up gay men. One time they were looking at priests and nuns as people who might go off the deep end, I think, over some sexual problem. None of it made any sense, of course. They say at one point they were looking at priests and nuns who might have gone over the edge. Yeah. Now they're looking at the lesbians. Like, they round up all the gays. Yeah. They didn't do it. Then they round up all the lesbians. When the lesbians didn't do it, they go for the priests and nuns. Can yeah. you imagine, Monsignor, you spend 15 years in the seminary, you get a knock on the door, you're being dragged down in handcuffs because they think you're the Boston Strangler. Well, <laughs> to be fair, not the best track record. <laughs> But we weren't talking about any of that in the, the 60s. It was all fine. No, it was just happening. Exactly. We weren't, we weren't talking about it or doing anything to stop it. It no. was just happening. <laughs> exactly. And then the priest would be moved from school yep. to school and place to place, yep. but no one's talking about we'll the We'll come back to that story in Boston like 30 years later with an Oscar-winning film. Spotlight is so totally. good. All this shit goes down in Boston. I know. But like, we've covered plenty of serial killers that are gay men. Leave the lesbians alone for the <laughs> love of God. They are just trying to build back decks, ride their motorcycles, Sure. Bake their... Oat bread? Okay. Totally. Is oat bread a thing? Totally. It feels very indigo Bake girls. Their and before you come at me for stereotyping, know that I'm just talking about the lesbians I was raised by. Sure. You know what I mean? Which 
Just you leave were. the fucking lesbians alone. They've had it hard enough, is my point. Is oat bread real? Sure. If oat milk is real, oat bread has to be real. Is it? Absolutely. I know everyone was making sourdough during lockdown. Okay. <laughs> but I don't know anything about oat bread. Maybe I just made it up. I don't know. So- <laughs> That's your idea. That's that's a good a free idea for me. And absolutely, oat bread. Let's do it. Meanwhile, oatmeal, oat, oat bread's probably been being made for <laughs> totally. centuries, and I'm just an idiot. <laughs> so four months go by, no killings. Yeah, and the police are looking into anyone and everyone. Yeah, and so now it's December 1962, and Sophie Clark is victim number six. But the difference with Sophie Clark, Sophie Clark was the first young woman, and she lived with two roommates. The first group of victims were older, middle-aged white women. And the next victim was a young, good-looking African-American woman. This is very unusual behavior for a serial killer. She's a 20-year-old medical tech student. And she's black. That's only relevant because they're going to start connecting this murder and subsequent murders to the previous five, which were all elderly white women. Right. The scene is the same, though. Sexually assaulted, murdered, staged, no forced entry. So the thing that because she's black and because she's young, she had roommates, but she was alone at the time. Yeah. The question is, is this a copycat or is this guy breaking the pattern? And we're going to go back and forth on this in this documentary. Like, I'm going to say right now, I do not think it's the same person. Because, yeah, I like, so. I think that we know that serial killers don't tend to break their, I don't want to use the word type. That's the word that, like, they're going to, like, serial killers, quote, have a type or whatever. This is so different. Difference. And yeah. like to break into a home with a woman who has roommates is so risky. Yeah. It just seems not connected. Yeah. But, you know, copycat killing is a real thing. It is. And so that's the question is that what's happening here? And this is all over the paper. Right. You know, like he knew how to stage it because it was described as much as it could have been, I guess. Right. So the point is, no one's sure if this is the actual Boston Strangler or not. So now we jump to New Year's Eve, 1962. In Back Bay, we're in the same neighborhood. We learn about the murder of Patricia Bissett, and she's found murdered in her locked apartment. That's the other thing. All of these apartments are locked. So he's getting in and then leaving and somehow locking them. Right, or leaving, like, out a window or something. Right. So that's a weird thing we don't really get into. And she's 23 years old. Right. So another young woman, as compared to the first five who were all elderly women. Right. And they say the crime scene photos indicate that she may have served coffee to a visitor just before her murder. Right. So we get this reenactment where, like, the idea is that maybe this guy talked his way in, like he's some kind of repairman, and she was nice and she made him a cup of coffee. All of these things which like 30 years later we'd be able to pull for fucking DNA. Right, exactly. But like that's the thing. Like this guy is able to talk his way in and I think an argument for it maybe could be the Boston Strangler is that he is specifically breaking the pattern so that this young 23 year old or the 20 year old will feel safe. Well I'm not a target so maybe he you know like that's I'm not saying it is but I can entertain that argument for a couple minutes. It's so weird. Like I knew this case and I forgot about it and then I knew it and I can't remember where we land like is this a solved case or you know what I mean yeah 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 the fact that all these years later there's still so much mystery here I know we learn quickly that the cops are turning to a doctor named Ames Roby. He's a forensic psychologist. He works at Bridgewater State Hospital, which, mm-hmm. like, if you're from Massachusetts, when you're a little kid, like, that's where your parents threaten to send you if you're bad. Oh, my God. Really? <laughs> I'm going to send you to Bridgewater. It's one of those, like, really sad, scary places. Exactly. That, oh, that's exactly no. what it is. But they're looking to him to sort of, like, profile this guy. Right. They've got nothing. They've got no clues, no witnesses, nothing. Yeah. So they're turning to Dr. Roby. They're trying to, like, get in the mind of the kind of person that would do this. Sure. Just put a pin in him. We'll come back to him later. So now May 8th, 1963, Beverly Samens is victim number eight. And she's in Cambridge, so she's not in Boston. And now this is 
different. She was stabbed. She's a 23-year-old opera singer. She was stabbed in the neck and in the like in the and heart. In her breasts, yeah. And so, like, my thing is, did he know she was an opera singer and was trying right. to destroy right. and, like, stabbed repeatedly in the neck? There's blood everywhere. Everywhere. So now we're getting to, like, okay, well, this doesn't match any kind of pattern with the Boston Strangler. Yeah, and, like, this is where Martha Coakley, the attorney general, is saying... Certain kinds of predators may have a particular kind of victim. They may use a particular technique, but that doesn't mean that everything they do is a carbon copy of the other thing. For law enforcement, this kind of predator is your worst public safety nightmare. Like, this is the worst nightmare for public safety. Right. Like, he's just attacking and killing any woman at random. Right. We have no idea who he is or what his MO is and who is, like, everyone's a target. And he's also going to different places because now by early autumn in 1963, he's in Salem, Massachusetts. Right. And our victim is... If it's the same person. Right. Evelyn Corbin is our victim. She's 58 years old. She doesn't show up to mass. And that's, you know, she was violated. She was strangled. She was posed. So there are nine victims in about a year's time. And then Kennedy was assassinated. And then we hear from about 30 people. Yeah, it was hard for everyone, but especially people in Boston. I have, look, I'm from there. I have never heard that argument before. I've never heard the people say that it was like harder on Massachusetts than other places. Right. But the day after the assassination, when all of Boston is in mourning more than everyone else. <laughs> like, why do you want to win that contest? I was grieving more than, it was, uh-huh. it's bad for everyone, I'm I, assuming. I wasn't I've there. I've never heard that. I've never heard that. But right. apparently it was real bad in Boston. They're all crying to their Duncan, yeah. which is <laughs> which is believable. Oh, all right, let me have their grief. My God, but I'm saying everyone. Like, I know, but it really hit home. I like, okay, I'm sure it did. I've just never heard that before. Yeah, and you're from there, so I, you know, I. Trust it's you. true. Meanwhile, my only note here is we talk about the Kennedy assassination. I'm like, I don't see how this is connected at all. Well, because it's like a distraction, right? Like now, it's you know the, the whole world stopped. But like the, what you said before, we have nine victims, and we are not anywhere near solving this thing. In about a year's time, like it just keeps happening. Everyone, I can't imagine. I don't understand why we're not hearing reports of all the women who left Boston. I know. Why would you stay there? Everyone's just living together. I don't. But I, like, I would either. <laughs> It's all communes of women just everywhere. How great would that be? (laughs) Like, I would either move in with like 30 people. And never leave your fucking house and never answer the door, goddammit. Which in one sense is my absolute worst nightmare. Totally. And in another sense, like a very comforting feeling. Yeah. (laughs) Or I'd just leave. I imagine you would leave. I can't imagine. I feel like you'd be like, why did I ever move to Boston? In the fr- what am I doing what am here? I, how did, how I, did get I get here? here? <laughs> Do, like, what was the decision that made you move to Boston? I take a wrong turn on the Cross Boston? Island Parkway and totally. suddenly... <laughs> you live on Com Ave. Com, sure. <laughs> and I like bay. Boston. I, li- I think it's a, it's a fucking great city. I love it there. The day after the assassination, there is another murder. And her name is Joanne Graff. And she's a 23-year-old Sunday school teacher. Yeah. She's assaulted. She is killed. She is strangled. Yeah. Yeah, these killings are so personal. And now the cops are... (laughs) The Boston Police Department was under tremendous pressure to solve this case, not only from the local populace, but from people all over the nation, all over the world. The entire world's criminal focus was focused on Boston. The police manhunt has become a high-profile humiliation. 
It's become a high-profile humiliation, and that's why they got to catch the guy. Okay. Not because of the nine fucking women, ten women now who are dead, yeah. and the countless others who are living in terror. The cops are their little baby feelings have gotten their hurt. Little little baby baby feelings. <laughs> and now they got to fucking solve. Now you know what? Now we're gonna solve it. Yeah. Now that we're upset, we're gonna solve it. Now we'll tonight. We'll stay till like five thirty. Exactly. 5:30. And like I know they wanted to solve it, and I know that the police didn't have like final cut over the copy here. And there's only so much they can do in 1963 with no DNA, no forensics. I mean, you know I say this all the time. Like, back before 2001, if you didn't see the murder happen, forget it. You know what I mean? There's not, like, you had fingerprints and that's oh, it. Oh, yeah. You know? Yeah. You looked at me like I, was like, like I was putting a lot of people away. I'm not good evidence. Well, that's where my mind went. <laughs> yeah, I was yeah, like, yeah. well, Damien was arrested in night. <laughs> like, I know. But that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Like, there, like, how did you solve murders back then? You just threw people in prison. It's true. Just to get the numbers. You know, just to clear the case. Yeah. So Casey Sherman is here. He's a true crime author. And yes. apparently, I've definitely heard the name. He's kind of well known. But he's a talking head here because he has a connection to the 11th victim. Yes. The 11th victim, Mary Sullivan, is his mother's sister. So his aunt. His aunt. And this is where it's like, oh, God, her body was found by her roommates. So this whole idea of, like, living with a group of women or people, that goes out the window. And, like, the way, just being from Boston, I followed the whole thing. Because the roommates come home from a long day of work working at Filene's Basement in downtown Boston. We had a Filene's Basement in Queens. Listen, this Filene's Basement is famous because it's where Oprah would always cover the semi-annual wedding dress sale. We've talked about this before. Did your sister go to it? My sister got her wedding dress at the semi-annual Filene's Basement. (laughs) wedding dress where women are punching I'm telling right, you right. like fam you can watch YouTube videos yes. of this women in like full body like oh they come prepared they come prepared so they can try it on and throw it on the ground try it on and throw it on the ground because you're getting wedding dresses for like a hundred dollars oh my and then, you, and then you're there are fist fights over a the dress fist fights over there and like this is where the roommates were working it was a very cold evening and when they got home that night they opened the door and there was a light in the kitchen but no light in the bedroom Yet they could see the silhouette of Mary's body sitting up on the bed. They thought she had been sleeping, and they called out her name once, Mary. And they called out her name several times, and she didn't answer. She's not answering it, but they can see that somebody's in there. And, like, when you're living in the era of the Boston Strangler, you must know. You must be like, oh, my God, what's back there? And they go back there, and they find her, and it's what they feared. Right. It was, like, the one night they happened to all be gone. And, she, you know, it's like, because you you have to think that everyone was doing what they can do to be safe. And can I just say, they keep saying this guy can talk his way in. I'm sorry. I don't think these women are stupid. I agree. We're on victim number 11, and this guy has knocked on the door, and you open the door. This guy's in. He's not waiting to be invited at this point. And he's telling you not to scream. And that's why you're not making any noise. And you think you're going to survive. I don't think at this point, Mary Sullivan willingly let a strange man into her apartment in Boston after 10 victims. No, that's what I'm saying. Imagine what. Yes, I agree. Maybe he talked his way in the first and second time. But after that, like you open the door and he pushes his way in. Right. You know, like the time he had coffee with her. Like she fell. They didn't do it. He did it. Right. Whoever killed them (laughs) is at fault here. Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So enough is enough. Something needs to be done about this guy. Apparently, Mary Sullivan's killing was the last straw for the nation. Okay, good. Yeah. I mean, it took us forever to get there, but I at mean, least we're here, I guess. I victims. Jesus Christ. So Ed Brooke is the attorney general of Massachusetts, and he's black, which they make a point to tell us. Yeah. And he's Republican, and he had his eye on the Senate seat. And so he wants to take over the investigation. He want, he forms a task force because, like, the stakes are pretty high. If this backfired, it would be bad for his career. But right. if he nailed it— If he's the guy who solves he'd it. He'd have it made. Exactly. In the shade. So Brooks appoints his deputy, John Bottomley, to oversee the investigation, and everyone's real nervous. For detectives working the case, 
Bottomley's lack of police skills strikes a raw nerve. John Bottomley had never conducted a criminal investigation in his life. John Bottomley was a real estate lawyer. He'd never been to a crime scene. He'd never interrogated a suspect. He was a fucking real estate attorney. He's yeah. overseeing this investigation. Yeah, he was showing people apartments two weeks ago. <laughs> That's not what a real estate lawyer does. But he was John, like, and here are hey, the sweeping know. windows. In a pinch. The sweeping views. Exactly. You use this as a craft room. He, yeah, he's the guy who's like, if you say cozy, John. that means super small, but we can get away with it. Just say cozy. <laughs> say sun drenched. Even though it's a shoe. You know, we're going to use the word drenched, drenched to describe the way the sun hits sun the floor drenched, here. Yeah. yeah. Sweeping, sprawling. Ceilings. Anyway. But bottomly, I will say, is all about new technology. He's got these things called computers. They're like this newfangled equipment. Can you imagine the 1964 computer was as big as this room? Uh, Or bigger. Yeah. And he's saying these computers can process over 10,000 leads. Right. I don't know how. I don't know what they're doing or what they're looking for. Six months. Um, They interview 400 suspects. None of them are the guy. They consult a psychic, to which I say great. Which is my favorite part. They like they they take a moment to point out that they consult a psychic and then it led nowhere. Yeah, thank you. Didn't have to be a psychic to see that one coming. <laughs> you know we believe in this shit. So yeah. somewhere, some listener who is a psychic was like, this is, the, you know what, it's not going to, no. my guides on the other side are telling me it's not going to go right. anywhere. my gut is saying, yeah. look, as someone who like lives by their gut, totally. I just did a tower reading the other night, like, I'm in it, I'm in. I know. <laughs> you don't have to convince us, but it, you know what, it doesn't usually go anywhere. Right. So, but the press loves this shit, right? Yeah. Like, it's more humiliation for the cops. It's selling papers. Everyone's scared. Like, this is great for the press. Totally. Horrible for basically everybody else. But at the same time, the killings stop. Boston, January 1965. The new year rings in with a celebrated calm. It's been a full 12 months since the last victim was found. The Strangler Task Force is in place, and people want to believe the nightmare is over. But all is not well in the Commonwealth. So after a year of nothing, Mm -hmm. of no murders, suddenly the hotlines that were set up to give tips about the Strangler, the hotline is getting calls about rapes and sexual assaults. So like, is this the Strangler who's just like not killing them anymore? Or is this like a whole new guy? Right. Because what we're learning is that this guy comes in somehow, gets his way in, attacks these women, and then leaves. He's leaving these women alive. But again, he's entering without force. And like, that's another calling card of the Boston Strangler. Right. So by October of 1964, a woman is able to describe this guy's face. And he's wearing these green work clothes, so he's known as the Green Man. Yeah, and also this guy has committed these crimes in Massachusetts, New Hampshire, Rhode Island, and Connecticut. Yeah. So the police are saying that the Green Man is Albert Salvo. Which we don't know how they come to that conclusion. Yeah, it's just presented to us, right? I I rewound 30 times and I'm like, where are they saying that? Like, where they just like, okay, so like Albert DeSalvo's here. Is the guy, and he's a construction worker. He lives in Malden. Okay. And they say he had a mild rap sheet that included fondling women in quote perverse calm. He would knock on women's doors and then be like, hi, I'm a modeling scout with a fucking tape measure and he had a measuring tape he would just measure women that's how it was what he how he got off at one point he's content to just measure women and then he wants to touch them and it takes more and more to sort of satisfy whatever that compulsion is 
He'd like find a way to touch them when he's measuring them and he'd like fondle them and then assault them. Because it went from groping these women to fondling these women to then full on raping these right. women. And yeah, he keeps getting worse and worse and worse. Yeah. So now suddenly, and then I'm like, did I miss like a 20 minute chunk of this? Because now he's suddenly at the mental hospital. Yeah. Somehow he's been like arrested and he goes to that Bridgewater State Mental Hospital, the place I was saying where our parents used to threaten to send us when we wouldn't come to dinner on oh time. Oh my God. And so that psychiatrist there Ames Roby, he was the one that the police were looking to to be like, hey, what's like the psychological profile of the person who would be like the Boston Strangler? Right. That guy is suddenly DeSalvo's doctor. So while DeSalvo's here, he's like bragging about like assaulting 2,000 women. He's like showing no remorse. They describe him as a total narcissist. And they're saying like before, like, whoa, 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 whoa. I know you think we're going to tell you he's the Strangler, but Dr. Roby is saying like, no, this guy's a narcissist and a rapist. Yeah. But he doesn't have that sadistic evil in him to commit these like crazy heinous sexual murders. But then one of his survivors makes an anonymous call and she says, I think my rapist, DeSalvo, is the Boston Strangler. And that's compounded by the fact that now we learn about this guy, George Nasser. His roommate. So this is so, it's just like a, a random crazy coincidence where this guy, George Nasser. At that time, Alba was a roommate to a man named George Nasser who was actually the Boston police's favorite candidate as the Boston Strangler. Nasser is also the Boston PD's number one suspect of being the Boston Strangler. Right. And he's also a convicted killer. Right. Stay with me, fam. Because right. this guy, Nasser, his attorney is a young, unknown F. Lee Bailey. Who is here with us being very problematic as usual. And can I tell you, I've listened to five podcasts about this and seen three other documentaries. F. Lee Bailey is in every single one of them. Uh, of course he is. He's in every single one. He is the Gloria Allred of men. I thought you were going to say the Diane Diamond. <laughs> oh my is there God. a camera? Here? Do you need me to talk about One anything? One of our Q&As for the book tour, somebody was like, what's your beef with Diane Diamond? Didn't she start it? She totally started it. She like came out, of, you guys were friends, and then you, we you tweeted friends. something political, I think, yeah, and she was she like, like, I don't like that. She called Biden a liar. I was like, okay, well, I can't with you, Diane Diamond. Diane. Anyway... Effley Bailey is having a conference with his client, George Nasser. Nasser's like, oh, let me tell you about this DeSalvo guy who's an idiot, who's my new roommate. And, <laughs> and he's got... Who's an idiot. <laughs> because the whole idea is that, like, everyone wants to make DeSalvo a patsy, I think. Yeah. And so Effley Bailey is like, wait a second. You're talking about the green man that's, like, in all the newspapers? Right. I want to meet with him, too. Right. So Effley Bailey sets up a meeting with DeSalvo, and now suddenly Bailey is defending Salvo. So here's what happens. F. Lee Bailey Did tells us- Did I not do us, a great job? Please, you like, did a great job. Okay, great. <laughs> I'm just adding on to it. Okay, this okay, is okay. an end, not a but. Uh, great. Because it all makes sense to me. But it, it like it's a non it doesn't really make a ton of sense how Effley Bailey becomes DeSalvo's attorney. Because what he says is Effley Bailey tells us his primary interest was whether or not he could write a book and make some money to leave to his family. He knew that the charges pending against him for robbery and breaking and entering and rape from the Green Man indictment that was in Cambridge, Massachusetts, was going to prevent him with his record from ever getting out of prison again. DeSalvo was interested in writing a book so he can make money and give it to his family. And this is really important. So F. Lee Bailey asks DeSalvo a ton of questions about his assaults 
and murders. And he doesn't go to the task force. He goes to the cops. Because what ha- what's happening is Effley Bailey is thinking... He's playing may- all sides against the middle here. Right. Because he's thinking maybe this guy is the Boston Strangler and I could be the guy to solve it. But he's also thinking, and he doesn't say this out loud, but the implication is Effley Bailey is thinking this guy wants to make money selling a book. He knows he's just based on the green man charges. He's never getting out of prison. Right. So maybe I can get this guy to admit to also being the Boston Strangler. He can add that to his book deal. Mm-hmm. And he'll make even more money. It's a win-win. I get to solve it. He gets the money. It's right. a win-win for everybody. Effley Billy wants us to believe, though, right. that he really thinks DeSalvo is the Boston Strangler right. and that he got to the bottom of it. He outsmarted right. the cops. Here's what happens. Effley Bailey says to the cops, not the task force. Yeah. I think I found the Boston Strangler. Yes. Here's what we're going to do, says F. Lee Bailey. You tell me very sensitive and privileged information that only you and the killer would know. I'll go to this DeSalvo guy and I'll ask him a ton of questions and then I'll report back. If he has answers to things that no one else knows that I now also know, yeah. then he's the guy. Now, think a, about that. So a cop tells us that that was the deal. Right. F. Lee Bailey is here to say that the deal wasn't that. Right. The deal was the cops would say, here are the questions you get the answers and we'll decide if it's the same and without giving Effley Bailey any information. Right. So what really happened, we don't really know. We don't know. So now this Nasser, both roommates... Nasser, Nasser and DeSalvo are both represented by F. Lee Bailey. Yes. Right. Meanwhile, the cops think Nasser is the fucking strangler. Right. There he's he's the number one guy. F. Lee Bailey thinks DeSalvo's the strangler. He, F. Lee Bailey <laughs> is playing know. all sides I know. against the middle. I know. So then someone tells us Nasser and DeSalvo thought they could collect the reward that had been offered for information leading to arrest of the killer or killers. They understood it to be $10,000 a piece for all of the victims. They're in it for the reward because there's a $10,000 reward. I just want to pause here and say the fact that DeSalvo, whether he's the strangler or not, we know he did all these other awful things, that he stands to be able to make money I off know. of Like, that's not a thing now. Like, no. I don't know when the they changed this. Right. But like back then, he could not only make money writing about these horrible things that he did. If he turns himself in, he also gets the reward for solving. Solving the case. Right. That is, how is that legal? Right. But how you so accurately described him as an idiot. Yeah. He thinks that it's 10000 per murder. Right. Not just 10000 for the guy. And by the way, Nasser and DeSalvo both get the money if they, like, are proven that DeSalvo is the strength. Right. They're all in on it together. And yeah. F. Lee Bailey, there are tele- telegrams. Yeah. <laughs> What is this, the Titanic? Like, what? <laughs> Telegrams from F. Lee Bailey saying, consider yourself a winner. I know. Like, he's in on it. Like, they all want this money. And then he goes, very truly yours, F. Lee Bailey. Did you watch Big Love? Were you a Big Love person? No. All right. There's this guy who's like just a character and a half. His name is Hollis Green. And he would say... Very truly yours, Hollis Green. But that's how he would end phone calls. Like it wasn't, it wouldn't be in a telegram. Like he'd be on the phone with uh-huh. Bill Paxton and it's like, you know, bring the money at this or I'm going to kill your your kid or whatever. Very, Very truly, truly yours, yours, Hollis, Hollis Green. Green. Click. <laughs> and like the point was that he was just such a character, like a backwoods character. Oh but my God. I, Very truly yours, F. Lee Bailey. It was the first thing I thought of. Very truly yours, Hollis Green. And he had a very, like, formal way of speaking. I would be shocked to find out that F. Lee Bailey didn't also end phone calls that way. I mean, but he's also very like, hi, it's me, F. Lee Bailey. I'm amazing. (laughs) 
But so what happens is F. Lee Bailey records his conversation with the Salvo mm-hmm. and then plays it for the cops. And they say they play it at a low speed so the cops couldn't identify the voice or whatever. But the cops are like, oh shit, this guy knows everything about all of the crime scenes. Right. So DeSalvo is the green man. He did right. the rapes and the assaults. They don't have anything on him to arrest him as the Boston Strangler. Right. Because there's no evidence right. for anybody. So the attorney general and the task force, they offer a deal. This is wild. This is one of the most famous things in crime history. The deal is... Let Albert give his confessions to us. We will then verify those confessions. And if we find that those confessions are accurate, we'll never use these confessions against him in a court of law unless he gives us permission. In what world is this guy going to give you permission? What's going on here is they know they've got him for life on the green man charges. So it kind of doesn't matter. It can be seen one of two ways. They're trying to get answers and closure for the families or they're trying to close and clear the most notorious, most humiliating case in Boston police history. I'm going with door number two. Which is clearly what's happening. I'm going with door number two. And we'll get more into it in a minute. But like everyone is happy for DeSalvo to take the fall because if he acknowledges that he's the Boston Strangler, he now gets to add that to his book deal and he's going to make a fucking fortune. Or so he thinks. Everyone sees this as solving a problem. But the, the one thing that they also say, and I want to say it now in case we don't get to it, when DeSalvo went to prison, the murder stopped. Uh-huh. So yes. that's also true. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have that note too. Yeah. We would have gotten to it. We would have gotten to it. I have faith. We would have done it. So now, you know the true crime writer? So now we get the Sebastian Younger story. This is what his book at Death in Belmont is all about. This is his story. This is his connection to the case. Basically, when he was six months old, his mom and dad were having work done on their house. They're having mm-hmm. an addition built. And there was like a construction crew there. One of the guys on the crew was named Al. And one morning after the dad had gone to work, again, Sebastian Younger is like six months old. He's a baby. But the dad goes to work and this guy, Al, shows up like an hour early and somehow gets into the basement and starts screaming bloody murder like, Mrs. Younger, Mrs. Younger, come down. Your washing machine is blowing up or whatever. And she's like, what? And he was looking at me in the most terrifying way. It was like his eyes were pulling me down those steps. Like he was almost insane. He was trying to get me down there. And I just slammed the door. And I ran to the window and saw him run out and he disappeared. I have never been so frightened. The look on his eyes were of pure evil. Like yeah. he was trying to draw me into the basement with his eyes. This is Albert DeSalvo. Yeah. We learned this like later, but Sebastian Younger is saying to us, and I remember this picture is so haunting. The mom doesn't go down. And she says she's never been so scared in her never life. Never been so scared. She slams the door and he runs away, but he comes back to work on the house the next day, acts like nothing happened. But he says, oh, can I get a picture with you and the baby? What a weird There thing. is a picture of Albert DeSalvo with Sebastian Younger and his mother with like Sebastian sitting on her lap. It is crazy. And he's got his hand like over his stomach, like right above her head. And Sebastian Younger is like, that is quite possibly like the hand of the Boston Strangler right next to my mother's head. Can I take a photo? I know. So weird. And somehow she has a copy of it. Like it is, it is absolutely I'm just like, how does this photo exist? It would be like having a picture with the Zodiac Killer. You know what I mean? Like it's wild. It's wild. So March, 1965, no murders for a year. Albert DeSalvo finally confesses to being the Boston Strangler. Yeah. You know, and we get his, like, backstory that DeSalvo's, like, quote, this good family man. He's got a wife and two kids. And yeah. He had, like, a horribly abusive childhood. Right. Where he would get beaten and abused all the time. We had a very violent alcoholic father. It was a very sexual household. The father would bring prostitutes back to the apartment. His father once broke the mother's ten fingers one by one lining the children up and making them watch. And he evidently brought sailors home to have sex with his daughter, 
when she was in her middle teens. It's a very violent and a very sexual and a very abusive home. And all of the experts are here to say, like, you want to create a serial killer? This is, like, the roadmap. This is exactly how you do it. And then he, like, he had a terrible marriage, though. Like, he wanted to kill his wife and he was hurting his own daughter. Like, he he really wasn't this, like, nice, normal, unassuming guy. He's a fucking monster. Right. And, like, this is where they say, again, like, despite all of that and despite his confession, there's nothing to connect him to the murders. And there are some red flags with this confession. Because they're saying there's very little to connect him to the murders and it also doesn't seem like all the murders were committed by one person because again the first five were all elderly women murdered in a single summer violated without sexual consummation meaning they were sexually violated but like he didn't have sex with them with objects and so right and so the last six were all except for one of them they were all under 25 years old there was semen found on or near the bodies and many believe that these were copycats right so DeSalvo's admitted to all of them, but it doesn't even seem like all of them are connected. So they're thinking maybe he just did the last six. Maybe he was the copycat because of his narcissism, his need for attention. Or just one of them. Right, right. Because what we, again, we learned, there's no evidence really at any of these scenes except for the semen that's found with the last six. Right, right. By August 1965, the real estate lawyer who's leading the task force sits down with DeSalvo. <laughs> yes. And they tape it. And this is where we got the script for the voiceover that we right. threw out. And, you know, we don't have to go through this, like, at length. But essentially, we are told here that John Bottomley, that guy, the head of the task force who's right. doing these interviews, he's expecting that DeSalvo will be able to accurately describe some of them, but not all of them, because they don't know if he did them all or whatever. Right. But they go through the murders case by case. And according to John Bottomley of the task force, this guy DeSalvo has all the goods on all of the murders. Right. He knows only things that the murderer would know. Right. What people were wearing, how he strangled her, you know, the boat, like all of these details that apparently also weren't in the paper. Also confesses to two other murders that people don't even know about. 85-year-old Mary Mullen who died in his arms of a heart attack and 69-year-old Mary Brown who was bludgeoned to death. But for all the detail recalled in his accounts, some doubt the credibility of DeSalvo's confessions. But the doctor at the hospital doesn't buy it. No, again, we're back to him saying, I mean, he's not with us, but we're back to him having said that he doesn't believe that he had it in him to kill anybody. He has a motive to lie. His motive to lie, call me the Boston Strangler. I'm never getting out of prison anyway. Let me write my book and make money for my family. That's what he's in this for. Yeah, and then the cops are like, right, but he picked out the raincoat that a victim was wearing. And like, there's a lot of evidence in all directions. Like, we get get the raincoat story, which is like, we know that the Boston Strangler stole a raincoat from one of the victims and when the cops called the daughter and said can you describe the raincoat she's like I have an exact replica of it Right. so they get the replica and they put it in a box of eight other raincoats and they bring it to DeSalvo and he picks out the exact one right do you just get lucky with something like that I don't know and he apparently did it more than once like with these details yeah there's another woman this is when Evely Bailey uses an outdated racist and offensive term to describe a victim who's mixed race specifically half black and half white and I'm gonna leave it at that and we're not gonna play it Evely Bailey it's it, it, it took my breath away to I, hear him say it. And the way he said it, and it's like, that's all I need to know No, about but in this murder, according to the cops... Even when DeSalvo's memory falters on a key point, he is still able to provide impressive, intimate detail on related aspects of the event. He had to have either had access to the police reports, to the crime scene photographs, to the autopsy reports, and he didn't. Lucky? I don't think so. 
there were pieces of evidence that they collected that were never reported to the newspaper. Right. And according to the cops, DeSalvo told them, like, what those things were and where they were found. But also, like, maybe the cops also told F. Lee Bailey these answers before he went to him. Right. But every, we get, like, four different sides to every story, right. so I don't know it's what like to believe. either the cops gave F. Lee Bailey all this information or they didn't. But if they did, then he could be feeding this to DeSalvo. Exactly. Right? Of course. I felt crazy but th- watching that's it. why, like, th- I was saying earlier, like, this case is so confusing because it's like, is it solved or is it not? I don't know. You know? And how many different cases are there? Like, exactly. how many different players, do, how many different horrible murders do we have here? Exa- right. That's another thing pointing to maybe it is DeSalvo because all these experts keep saying, is it possible that we have 11 deranged men running around? Boston is not a big city. Right. You running around the city, like, killing these women in these graphic, brutal, disgust. Is it possible you could have seven of them working at once? Right. Probably not. Probably not. You know? And like, the cops are blown away by his knowledge of the details, but they can't try him right. because of this deal that they made with him. So they can only, like, the only way to get this guy is to get him on the Green Man attacks. Right. And he did, for sure, rape those women. Exactly. The trial for the Green Man attacks started on January 10th, 1966. There's a lot of back and forth. Ethley Bailey's trying to say he's not guilty by reason of insanity. He gets convicted. Are we not going to talk about the poetry? <laughs> I'm so embarrassed for this poor voiceover actor. Here's the story of the Strangler yet, yet untold. untold. The elusive Strangler. There he goes. Whereas Wanderlust sends him, no one knows. People everywhere are still in doubt. Is the Strangler in prison or roaming about? The elusive Strangler. There he goes. <laughs> Where his wanderlust <laughs> sends him, no one knows. I mean, it's just unbelievable. Who writes this if you're the actual guy? Come on. I know. Right? So DeSalvo gets convicted for the Green Man attacks. He gets sent back to Bridgewater State Mental Hospital, right. which is where my mom used to threaten to send me if I didn't uh-huh. finish my chicken nuggets, which, Mom, I was always going to finish the chicken nuggets. Right. The broccoli I mean? is another story. Totally. The peas yeah. are another story. But he gets sent to, like, a mental hospital instead of prison, but then on February 24th, 1967, he escapes. He escapes, then calls his F- lawyer. Lawyer, Evelyn Bailey from a payphone, who calls the cops, they pick him up and they send him straight to fucking Walpole. Look, when you're from Massachusetts, you know what Walpole, it's a maximum, it's like Alcatraz on land. Spell that for me. W-A-L-P-O-L-E. Walpole? Walpole. Walpole? I think that's how you spell it. That doesn't make sense in my mouth. Yeah, we'll try saying Worcester. Worcester. So, like, meanwhile, like, movies are being made about this case starring Tony Curtis and Henry Fonda. And so what's happening, right, like, everyone is making money off of this except for him. Remember, he expected to be able to, like, be the Boston Strangler and make money off of that for his family, but it didn't happen. Now he's the Boston Strangler and he has nothing to show for it. Right. And so eight years into his prison sentence, I think he's, like, ready to say he's not the guy. Right. He makes two calls one night. He calls his brother and he calls that Dr. James Roby guy, the guy who was like, no, he never could have done it. Yeah, yeah. They make a plan to meet the next day at the prison. But before it can take place, Albert DeSalvo is murdered in the prison infirmary. He had been stabbed multiple times. But there were no defensive wounds on Albert's arms. And later on, when we re-exhumed Albert and did toxicology testing on his hair, 
We found that he had been drugged with Valium. And so they say, like, was he murdered by the mafia? Uh-huh. They eventually, years and years later, exhume his body. And we learn he was stabbed multiple times with no defensive wounds. And they they took a piece of his hair and drug tested it. And he'd been drugged with Valium. So, like, it was a targeted killing. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. And so, like, somebody didn't want him to talk. He wasn't the guy. But people do drugs in prison. Maybe he was just on Valium. May- but then was why'd they stab him? To kill him? I, I, guess, I guess. I guess. But, like, it ends with us back with Casey Sherman. He was the nephew of Mary Sullivan. One of the Boston Strangler's victims. Yes. And so he's here to say, like, look, my family never talked about it when I was a kid. I watched the Boston Strangler movie and said to my mom, like, oh, my God, at least they got the guy. And my mom was like, no, we like we don't believe they did. We don't believe DeSalvo was the guy. Right. So then this guy, Casey Sherman, makes it his, like, life mission to prove or disprove that DeSalvo was the Boston Strangler. Right. And so now, like, the DeSalvo's family is now involved in this. And Casey Sherman, the nephew of one of the victims, is working with the DeSalvo family to either rule him in or rule him out using new, like, DNA technology. Right. So they have to exhume the body of Mary Sullivan. Right. Also, I just want to, if you need to do this to me, it's okay. Exhume you? Yeah. Yeah. Like, if you're going to get to the bottom of something and, like, something will be solved, like, if it would help, do it and feel okay about it. I, you know, it's interesting because they always make a really big deal out of it. I think it has more to do with, like, their tradition. Sure. You know, but I agree. Same with me. Although I'm going to be ashes, so don't worry about it. Right. I don't know. I haven't decided yet, but... Okay. Don't bury... I do not want to be buried. Okay. That sounds awful. It sounds scary. You're afraid of airplanes, but you want to be buried in a coffin? I never said I wanted to be. <laughs> okay. But if it came down to it and something happened... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, before I have a will set up decide or right something... Now. I can't. You've done this to me before. Okay. I don't know what it is. But the point is, yeah. if you need to disturb me in okay. my final resting place <laughs> to get to the bot To get some answers... <laughs> yeah, 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 Do it and feel okay about it. I'm saying, on the record, it's it's okay. She was exhumed how she lived. Yeah. Disturbed. Disturbed. Oh, that's right. I like it. So they exhume her body. James Starrs and his team found what they believed was seminal fluid within her pubic region. They had already done a DNA test on Albert DeSalvo's brother, and they were able to use that sample, test it against the fluid found on Mary's remains, and it came back not a match. And they are able to say that it's not a match. Right. So the question is, if he didn't kill Mary Sullivan, which it looks like he didn't, what else is a lie? And who killed Mary Sullivan? Right. So then... Let's get her some justice. The main piece of evidence beyond DNA and all of that, Casey Sherman, the writer, and the nephew of Mary Sullivan says, as a reporter, he found the long-lost Robert DeSalvo interview transcript that had been done with the task force. Right. So they did that interview where he knew all the answers to everything, and he knew all of the things about all of the crime scenes that made the cops say, like, yes, he's the guy. Right. Somehow that had been lost to time and history. Right. But Casey Sherman found it. And he did the smartest thing I could imagine. He pulled all the autopsies for all the murders and compared them to DeSalvo's confession and none of it matched. Right. All of it was wrong. Right. So like where the cops are saying, oh my God, he knew everything about the crime scenes. He got all of the murders wrong. Right. Which sounds like if you're the cops and you're going to give Effley Bailey information, you're going to give him the crime scene information and not the number of stab wounds. Exactly. Not the instrument that was used. In one of the cases, he said like, I stabbed her the knife and I threw it in the swamp, they found that knife in the sink. Right. Yeah, th- that's what I mean. All of these things where it's like, it's kind of right, but then it's not right at all. And yeah. then he's just like, And all of shit. the murder stuff is all wrong. Like, he's not the guy. Right. 
So after Casey Sherman and the brother of Albert DeSalvo pool the DNA yeah. to like prove that it wasn't DeSalvo, in May of 2013, the police decide they're going to test evidence from the crime scene. Right. So this is the same case, Mary Sullivan, yep. Casey Sherman's aunt, right? So Casey Sherman and the brother of Albert DeSalvo got the DNA from sperm like that they found in her pelvis. Right. The cops are using sperm that they found on a carpet at the crime scene. Right. And so they test that sperm against one of DeSalvo's nephews. It's a very close match. Then they exhume DeSalvo and test it against his actual DNA and they say that it is a match. They're like, oh, it's Robert DeSalvo. There's a one in 200 billion chance that it's not him. That it's not his sperm that was found on the carpet at Mary Sullivan's house. So now we're back to, yes, Albert DeSalvo's DNA is on Mary Sullivan. So, but then everyone makes the point, and even Casey Sherman, the nephew, is like As an investigative journalist, you only go where the evidence leads you. And if Albert DeSalvo deposited DNA at the crime scene of my aunt, Albert DeSalvo killed Mary Sullivan. I've underestimated Albert DeSalvo's criminal capabilities. I now believe that DeSalvo killed my aunt, but I'm not saying that I believe he's the Boston Strangler. We got one case here. Right. From the beginning, people were saying, like, there's a very good chance he was a copycat. Right. The cops are saying, like, well, everything is, like, technically unsolved. Except for the Mary Sullivan case. And there will always be questions about this. Was yeah. he the Strangler? Was he a copycat? But, like you said, the Strangler stopped when he went away, so I don't know. Yeah, I mean, the cops did this to themselves because they made that deal with him where they couldn't ever put him on trial. Right. And I think the cops only interest here was getting the case, quote, solved as quickly as possible. Totally. Because of all the pressure they were under. They don't care who the strangler was as long as the killing stopped and they had somebody in prison for it. Well, I certainly care if that means anything to anybody. It means a lot to me. Okay, good. Okay, love you, bye. Okay, love you, bye. Oh my goodness, fam, we did, what's it called? God, the Boston, the hunt for the killer, the Boston Strangler. It's, I mean, I thought it was really interesting. I hope you were able to follow along with us. It feels it's like a, it's 2 in the morning. I know. That went on forever, that documentary. <laughs> does it not feel like it's 2 a.m.? No, it does feel like it's okay, 2 a.m. Fam, come see me on tour. I'm begging. I'm doing a benefit version of the book party for the Harvard Junior Theater slash Cape Cod Theater Company on May 20th on yep. Cape Cod. I'm going to be all in my feels. I'm hanging out with everybody. I'm My, my family's going to be there. It's my hometown show. It's two-thirds sold out. Please come if you're in the area. I'm going to be in London on August 4th. Amazing. Please come to that show. I'm afraid no one's coming. Oh, people are coming. <laughs> Please come. It's going to be magical. We're going to be without Daisy. We're going to be in the mood to party. Oh, boy. It's going to be real great. All right. PatrickFails.com, get all the information. Okay. What are we doing next? Oh, capturing the killer nurse. What is this? It's about a nurse who kills people. It's absolutely <gasps> terrifying. All right. What, where is it? Netflix. Okay. It's we're really doing scary. it next. Yeah. So, fam, stay tuned for the trailer for that and our funny and hilarious outtakes, and we love you. Okay. We love you so much. Okay. Bye. Yeah. <laughs> the idea that a nurse might be killing patients was very disturbing. There's no eyewitnesses. There were no cameras. Medical homicide, they're tough cases to prove. I walked in on him murdering someone. I felt like I was helping people. Sebastian Junger says something that was really is it Junger or Younger? Younger. I'm saying I'm it's going younger, younger and I'm just seeing the J and it's like freaking yeah, out. Yeah. You know the true crime writer? Sebastian Junger? Yeah. Younger. Am I saying it? <laughs> it's younger. 
Again, Sebastian Younger is six months old. He's a mm-hmm. baby. Younger? Again, Sebastian Younger, Sebastian Younger is back to say something that I took a little bit of. I was like, what? He goes, when society can't protect its women, there's a tremendous anguish that happens. And so, like, the society is revolting because women are, are in danger. When did that, when did when did they start caring about us? That's what I'm saying. I was like, Sebastian, did I miss that? what society are you living in? Because yeah. I don't think that's what's going on over here, girl. Are you, I don't, what? <laughs> Especially in 1963? Do you want to move to whatever town Sebastian Younger lives in? I don't. <laughs> From the beginning, people were saying he very easily could have been a copycatter. Right. A copycatter. I think it's just copycat. Are we cutting all of this? I'm sorry. I don't know. It's all true. All right. Well, let's cut all of (laughs) it.